to my machine learning friends who might be listening, no data set ever contained the structure of the NBA or the decisions that a coach has to make. It's just not in the data. And so what that means is that the really successful machine learning projects, things like Google advertising, Facebook advertising, making tons of money, are a very small subset of what's possible because they're the places where the machine has a really simple decision to make. And then there's massive amounts of data that could inform that decision, all the likes and clicks that you've done. But the whole world is not like that. In fact, that's a tiny, maybe 10% of the kinds of important decisions people make can be totally captured by data. So we really need this human-computer partnership to solve big, gnarly problems. I mean, things like climate and COVID and sustainability goals. Those are situations that have been really untouched in any systematic way by the data revolution at the level that we're seeing happening in, in marketing and advertising. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Quorum, and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Today, we are joined by Dr. Lorian Pratt. Lorian is one of the pioneers of artificial intelligence and is credited for inventing transfer learning. Recognized alongside Marie Curie and others by the Women, Innovators, and Inventors Project, Pratt continues to push the boundaries of technology as one of the creators and evangelists for decision intelligence which is the next phase of artificial intelligence and which will define how AI is used in the 21st century. Pratt's new book, Link, How Decision Intelligence Connects Data, Actions, and Outcomes for a Better World, describes and surveys this new discipline, which connects AI to human decision-making in a way that is transparent, auditable, and accessible, bringing this important technology to the masses and reducing information inequality. In this episode, we discuss the process of decision-making, risk assessment, and the perils of being an innovator. This episode will challenge your core beliefs on how organizations make decisions, and she will provide you with actionable insight to improve your decision-making outcomes. If you find today's podcast to be valuable, please subscribe and share it with your friends, and leave us a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. And now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Lorian, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Eric. Very honored to be here. Well, I'm excited that you're here because you have been in this space. We'll just start with artificial intelligence and machine learning for over 30 years. And I think for the lay person, they think that this is something that's recent because I think it's just starting to impact our lives now. But let's kind of go back a little bit. Like, What drew you to this field, I guess, in its early stages? Sure. Um, I'll be honest. As a kid, my dad took me to see 2001, and I saw Hal. And I thought that was the coolest thing whatsoever. It's just fantastic. So I said to myself, I would love to build an intelligence like that. Of course, I didn't want him to kill everybody, and I didn't think that <laughs> through as a kid. But uh, but that it just really drew me when I saw that. And oh. uh, I was at IBM building operating system code, which was great. I loved IBM, but in terms of technical stimulation, that was kind of your grandfather's jalopy of software engineering. So I started reading. This was, uh, I want to say, 83, I was reading the Handbook of Artificial Intelligence, which at that time was a three-volume series. Oh, my and goodness. And I read it in the... So this just shows how old AI is, right? 
So I, in the evenings from IBM, I, I would go home just to keep my brain alive and I would read AI. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I love how you put that to keep your brain alive. Yeah, I know. And then asked around and said, you know, I really want to be pushing the envelope. I don't want to be necessarily working on these great but very old operating systems. Mm. And they said, look, people will only take you seriously that way if you get a PhD. So I went off and got my master's and then my PhD at uh, Rutgers University in New Jersey. Wow. And you got your PhD in artificial intelligence, correct? Yeah, both the master's and the PhD were in computer science with a specialty in AI. That's right. Okay, so when you left Rutgers, what did you tackle first? (laughs) I tackled surviving being a new faculty member. (laughs) Most people get a postdoc out of their uh, Mm -hmm. PhDs, and I went straight into an assistant professorship job. But, you know, my PhD had been in something called transfer learning. Okay. Um, transfer very simply means that if you have a neural network that's been trained on one task, you can use it to help you as a starting point for a related task. So mm-hmm. maybe it's trained on performance of one kind of athlete and you would want to use it, you know, it goes from football players to soccer players, right? Okay. So most of the time people just begin by training their neural net as if it's a completely blank slate, if it's a brain that has no knowledge. Uh-huh. And this is a way of jump-starting um, such that the brain has some knowledge, which is how people do it, right? We don't start from scratch every time. Right. We use our experience on related tasks. And uh, so I continued in that vein from my PhD thesis and uh, wrote a book with Sebastian Thrun, who's a guy you might have heard of, and really continued in being a pioneer in transfer learning. Okay, so I have the uh, benefit of, of reading your book, almost through with it, So let me tell the story for everybody that's listening. I was at the public library with my son trying to check out as many books. I'm trying to cultivate this love for learning. So we're like looking around at all the kids' books and like, what does he like, you know? I'm like, hey, just give me five minutes so I can go look at the nonfiction section. And there's this book, Link. And the cover of Link says, how decision intelligence connects data, actions, and outcomes for a better world. And it just stopped me in my tracks. And I open the book up and I start flipping through it. I go home, I start reading, and I realize I have to mark this book up. So I had to buy the book. And then within the first chapter, you are articulating and solving a problem I've been dealing with for 10 years. And so without me divulging everything, when did you start realizing that there was, number one, this gap between artificial intelligence, machine learning, and human intelligence, right? and that we were living in this siloed world where it was inhibiting our ability to make good decisions. Like, when did all this kind of start hitting you? Sure. If we fast forward from that faculty job, 10 years later, I was a market analyst. So I had moved very much kind of a pendulum swing, 180 degrees from being a propeller head, right? A (laughs) techno nerd, three computer science degrees to really trying to immerse myself in the world of people who use the technology. So I was very honored. It's the best job in the world, Eric, to interview as you do hundreds of people every year to say, how is technology working for you, specifically focusing around data? Mm. And then then I also interviewed the vendors and, and I said, what are you planning on building And then I supervised a team of international writers whose job it was to identify the gaps between those two areas, right? So on the one hand, what do people want? On the other hand, what are vendors planning to build? (laughs) And they were consistently 
mismatching, right? So people wanted things that nobody was planning on building. People were building things that nobody wanted to buy. And so that was a real eye-opener, having really had, you know, my blinders on, just assuming if you build good technology that people will use it and not really being aware that there's this whole process of technology adoption that is not smooth. And so transfer learning, which, um, you know, what's, what's today, 2020, published my thesis in 92, the book in 96, that's a lot of years and transfers yes. finally, finally making it. Now transfer is really big, all the big winning algorithms like BERT, the T in BERT is, is transfer. That's a big natural language processing thing. What so is it BERT? Takes, so BERT's one of the incredibly high performing uh, natural language processing systems. We're seeing computers that can understand written text and human speech at a level it's never been able to accomplish before. And it uses this idea of transfer where we have a general purpose model and then we specialize that to like healthcare or people with a particular accent or things like that. So let me um, ask you this question. Sure. You are a pioneer. Like you are the antithesis of a pioneer. Okay. Right. It's 30 years later, it's 25 years later. Now the stuff that you're working on is like being used by a lot of people. Right. Was there anybody at the beginning when you're working on this stuff like, uh, Lorian, you're off your rocker? Almost everybody. Okay. Yeah. I had somebody tell me recently, and this guy's a former Navy SEAL, and he's been a friend of mine for a while. And he said, Eric, <laughs> this isn't bragging on myself because there's a lot of scar tissue with this. But he said, you're not wrong. You're just early. Mm-hmm, exactly right. Yep. Like, what does it feel like to be not wrong, but early? It feels poor mm. um, in, in two regards. So there I am at Rutgers and all of the AI professors, and this was a big AI school in 86. Mm. They're all doing something called symbolic learning. And I say, no, no, we need to do neural network learning. So symbolic means we use logic and language, and that's the language of thought, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the idea is that if we just put all of the words into a computer and turn the crank, that, you know, it'll say 42 and the answer to the universe and everything. And I thought, <laughs> I thought, no, you know, core cognition happens at a level below that. And so I was a real rebel, and it felt really lonely. Mm-hmm. And that was true both in graduate school and then especially when I went to... Um, when I went to my faculty position where there was nobody doing what I was doing. Wow. So you really depend on those few people who really believe in you. That, and, I, and I guess I should say to anybody who's in a senior position, if you see the rebels in your world, they, they particularly need your psychological encouragement. Yes, they need your advice, but mm-hmm. they sure do need somebody to say, um, you know, I believe in you. And there's always a rebel out there and, and that's got value to it. Now, if you're not in a senior position, somebody has to trust you to take it forward unless you have the financial wherewithal or the ability, the systems in place to go ahead and put something out of the market or prove your concept. Was there right. a point where you had to convince somebody that was overseeing you or something to take that leap of faith? Yeah. I mean, it, it happened a little bit in graduate school. So I did have some junior professors, brand new to being professors who said, Lori, I believe in you. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was great. And I, I'll always be grateful to, uh, to Heim Hirsch and Mick Nordweer and Jack Mostow, who were my advisors. But, you know, honestly, Eric, you know, just to finish the story from before, after being a, a market analyst for, for many years, I realized I didn't want to be writing about it. 
And there was no way I was going to convince somebody to do something as radical as what I needed to have done. So that's why it became justified for me to start my own company, which I did in 2010. So I just gave up. I gave up on trying to convince people, except, you know, I thought I had, but now it turns out I have to convince the market. (laughs) And that's even harder. And it's a 10-year slog, right? You know, this podcast had to write a book. I've been evangelizing and blogging for 10 years. And it just took a lot of persistence and determination. That's well, all. you have a true believer right here. Oh, it's great. Thank you. That's so gratifying to have that happen. Thank you. And it's, I'm so glad that I ran across this book at the public library because it is, in the world that I come from in sport, and it's just a microcosm for every other industry, we are probably the most siloed organization. Like it is, it is horrible. You have the coaches here, you have strength conditioning, you have sports science, you have athletic trainers. And then you have, a, if you're in a pro team, it's kind of that you have the front office, which is most of the time selecting the players. And there's this rift between the front office and the people that coach the athletes. Right. And everything's siloed. There's no common language. And, mm-hmm. and there's no formal education for any of these positions besides the athletic trainers and the strength conditioning coaches. And even there, it's not even too formal. So you have a bunch of people that have come to this mentor apprenticeship approach. And when, when you talked about, number one, would you define for our audience what a decision is? Because I kind of want to lead us down this pathway of what you have done, which I think is going to blow people's minds. But what is a decision? Because that's the core thing of the book leak. Sure. So very simply, a decision is a choice that you make. And it's a thought process you go through. Like, if I make this choice, how is it going to lead to some particular outcome? And that's different than deciding. I guess so. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it that way. But yeah, decision is a thought process. And then the end of that thought process is you make a choice. Okay, if I do this thing, Uh and I'm making that choice because, 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 because it will lead to these things which ultimately achieve my outcomes on the out on the outside. And and let me be really clear, there's a huge dis- distinction between deciding that like I decided that your shirt is red right now, Eric, mm-hmm. and deciding to take an action. And it's mm-hmm. it's deciding to take an action, it's where we're focusing, and that's where there's the big gap. That's where people have not solved that problem yet. Right, the lead to the outcome that you want or better outcome. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. as you talk about in your book. So what yeah. is decision intelligence? It is formalizing that decision-making process, which sounds a little scary, like, oh gosh, she's <laughs> going to talk about math, right? But, but it it's just starts with drawing a picture to say, here's all the actions I could take. You know, we talk about brainstorming through actions, and that's a good idea. But instead of sort of stopping and saying, oh, this is better than that, and this is better than that, and this is better than that, now we draw a picture of the why chain. We say, okay, the reason this is a good action, why, you know, so these are reason, because, and why are good words that, that convert to visual things. So that's why I'm waving my hands here. So you've got some action like, oh, I'm going to do a podcast with Eric. Well, why am I doing the podcast with Eric? One reason is because it'll just be fun, right? <laughs> and fun leads to happiness. Okay, so we've got that one chain. So we would draw that as a picture, right? Another reason I might do a podcast with Eric is it would give me more people who know about me, which would lead to more people who might click on a link about me, which might lead to more people buying my book. So I might get more revenues from my book. So it's just the process of taking that extra step instead of 
just saying why, 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 because, 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 and having these invisible words go between us. Uh It's taking that invisible space and making a map of it and having that as a picture that we draw. And, you know, just like we can't build a very big building without a blueprint, without drawing a picture of the building. Right. And we can't build a very sophisticated airplane if we're working on any complex thing. We draw pictures. Hello. We're totally hurting our brain. And you know this from your world that the brain is is really important and we need to use it correctly. And if we're just using the auditory, sequential, invisible part of our brain and we're not drawing these blueprints, it's going to be like, okay, guys, let's build, you know, a 50 story building. And now I'm going to tell you what to do. And we never draw the blueprint to figure out how my job interacts with your job and all of that. So that's how it starts. It's just drawing that picture. When I, when I read this, and you're talking about taking things that are in your mind and putting it in a visual field. Yeah. I think there's two issues here. Some people are going to be scared of that because now they actually have to put out for everybody actually how they're thinking through a process instead of just winging it. Right. But also you have all these different silos with using all different types of terminology and language and jargon. That's right. And now you're unifying all these processes to get to the one outcome that you want. And that seems so simple, but that's the elegance of this whole thing. Right. Was there like a situation when you finally just kind of go in, aha, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? We got to draw this out. Yeah. So having been a market analyst, I didn't start my company till I did a whole bunch of interviews, right? Because that's uh-huh. what I that's what I did. And I interviewed, I think it was 62 people formally and another few hundred informally. And I just started hearing this very consistent pattern. And that was really exciting. I mean, that's the best thing about being a journalist, right? Is when you start to hear these patterns where everybody's seeing the same elephant and they don't realize that they are. It's like the blind men and the elephant. You know, this one says it's a trunk. It's a tree trunk. Oh no, it's a sheet blowing in the wind. Oh no, it's, it's you know, a snake is the tail. And they don't realize it's all the same thing. And the, the same thing was A, that decision-making was tricky for people. B, that everybody saw all this AI and data, and yet it wasn't making it up to the most important decisions that companies were making. And then C, which I think was the coolest epiphany, is everybody was using this really similar language to talk about decisions. Everybody said they had some word for like the actions they would take or the choices they would make and the outcomes that they wanted and then the path from actions to outcomes. And so I realized that everybody already had a really simple mental model and it was really similar. And in subsequent years, I only figured this out like last year. It's actually, uh, goes back to BF Skinner, it's operant conditioning. It's like in a situation in the kitchen, I say, sit to my dog. So that's the antecedent. And then he sits, that's the behavior. And then the consequent, he gets a cookie, right? Antecedent uh-huh. behavior. That's classic, you know, psychology going back to the 1930s. And so there is this kind of archetypal way that people think. And that was really exciting. And I got it just by interviewing tons and tons and tons of people. Wow. That's so cool. It was, uh, it was a really moment. It was a really neat moment. Yeah. Because I just think back to all the pain that I've endured over the years trying to get people to work in this way and it's hard and I think you have to have a group that actually wants to collaborate wants to knock down the walls wants to have and it's really painful to get it done but when you share that mental model especially in like 
in a world like sports where things are happening, like on the field, it happens so fast. And if that unit doesn't share the model, if the coaches aren't sharing the model, there's a reason why there's only a few organizations in any sporting league that are consistently successful, Mm. especially in leagues like the NFL, where everything is made to make you 500. So the draft, you win, you get lower draft picks. You win, you get a harder schedule the next year. There's a cap on salary. So it's really like the NBA, you can go recruit these superstars and there's so few players that you get a couple of them and all of a sudden you're in the playoffs. Mm -hmm. And a guy like Bill Belichick, who to me is, you know, everything he does is like Art of War, Sun Tzu. The way they communicate is so interesting. And so when I was reading this book, it all it was like the matrix. All the numbers just start falling. And I'm like, this makes so much sense. This is such a beautiful thing. Yeah. And, you know, Eric, I wanted to reflect back on something you said. Yeah. And I never thought about it this way. You just, just in this moment, you made me realize this. The jargon is less of a barrier if everybody's got a picture that doesn't have any words on it that shows Ooh. kind of that structure, right? So yeah, aligning jargon is great, you know, so that we're all at least speaking the same language, right? Mm -hmm. But the picture makes that less necessary, right? Because we're in this sort of nonverbal space. You know, here's this action we would take and this intermediate and then this outcome. That's awesome. So for somebody that is not rooted in computer science like yourself, like that was their formal education process like me. I don't know how to code. I tried and I just didn't have, I don't know. My brain didn't work that way. That's okay. I don't play football. So there you go. Uh, (laughs) My mind is biological and certain other things. And I just, I I tried, I tried, I tried anyways, but I value what comes from machine learning. I think there's some fear from people that either didn't grow up with this or that they're like, oh, it's, you know, we can't let big data or whatever determine our actions the, the beauty of decision intelligence is you're not overvaluing human intelligence. You're not over, actually, you're not overvaluing the artificial intelligence over humans. Actually, you're trying right. to pull back and get the human intelligence in first to frame how you're going to mach- do the machine learning model. Is that correct? Absolutely. And, and to my machine learning friends who might be listening, no data set ever contained like the structure of the NBA or the decisions <laughs> that a coach has to make. It's just not in the data. And uh, so what that means is that the really successful machine learning projects that we've seen to date, things like Google advertising, Facebook advertising, making tons of money are a very small subset of what's possible, right? Because they're the places where the machine has a really simple decision to make. You know, should I show you an ad or not, right? And then there's massive amounts of data that could inform that decision, all the likes and clicks that you've done. But the whole world is not like that. In fact, that's a tiny, maybe 10% of the kinds of important decisions people make can be totally captured by data. So we really need this human-computer partnership to solve, you know, big gnarly problems. I mean, like what you're doing in sports, but, you know, also things like climate and COVID and, you know, the wicked problems, the sustainability goals. Those are situations that have been really untouched in any systematic way by the data revolution at the level that we're seeing happening in in marketing and advertising. Now, why is that? Is it because in marketing and advertising, you can make money or you don't make money? Like there's a, almost like a quick feedback loop. Yeah, it's, it's because you don't need a human in the loop, right? Okay. It's because the data has, if the decision is simple enough, you know, show the ad or don't show the ad, or which, which of these million ads am I going to show? 
that you don't need that complex causal knowledge. If I have a podcast with Eric, then that will make me happy. Oh, but it's also, there's a negative. It's going to cost me my time and I won't be able to do another thing. You know, so there's all these chains that go from an action I might choose to take to an outcome I might want to achieve. And it's just not cost effective to capture the data that Lorian makes. And machine learning is all about data, 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 data. So it's not in data. Most people don't think it's machine learning. And so it's just not a fully, it's not fully reducible to just a data problem. We need humans in the loop. And that's what's so exciting about DI is once we start structuring things with this little diagram with the action city outcomes, then that's like this little framework. And we can say, ah, we can stick a machine learning. Let's see, people who do podcasts, we have a machine learning that women of this particular age who are in tech, who do podcasts with guys like Eric, right? We <laughs> might have some machine, we might have some data about that, right? Yeah. So now we have this little injection point for the machine learning. So it gives us a framework for saying, where does the machine learning fit in? I love this. So in your book, you talk about AI will become accessible to people that don't have a data science background like me or don't know how to code. Yeah. What does this look like currently, right now? What do you think it will look like where people can really, they can ask great questions, they can, they can map these things out and they go, I want to apply this here. Okay, so what it looks like right now is if you want to get into AI and you think that's cool and you start Googling, you will see paper after paper after paper with lots of math. And, the, and all of them will be PhDs, or most people will be PhDs, or they've been through like a three-year data science program. And the analogy I look, I, I think about, it's like we didn't build the first automobile, you know, the Henry Ford usable automobile until we had built a thousand different kinds of engines and published on every different kind of automotive engine. This thing has been really dominated by academia. And so it's also like, oh, I want to cook a good meal and I have to understand, you know, the electromagnetics of the microwave, right? <laughs> That's how machine learning is right now. Decision intelligence, and this comes from Cassie Kosterkoff at Google. I love this analogy. DI is like, I want to be a chef, and you're trying to teach me the electromagnetics of the microwave. Please don't do that, <laughs> right? <laughs> so that's how it looks today. <laughs> because every time, you know, oh, I want to hire a machine learning team, or I want to get a machine learning thing, and they'll start hitting you with the inside of the box, right? How the thing works. And in general, machine learning folks don't really understand that boundary between the inside of the box because it's, it's a little fuzzier than a microwave. I can't open it up and touch it, right? And the outside of the box. So what are the gazentas? What are gazautas? Ah, oh, the gazentas are a whole bunch of data that you have a particular form. The gazautas are a model. And forget about the inside of the box. We can talk about that later. Thank you very much. Oh. So that's the future is we're going to hold our machine learning experts accountable for not giving us inside of the box, you know, how the thing works until we're completely satisfied with the gazentas and the gazautas. What goes in, what comes out, right? Wow. And, and that's where we're moving as this discipline matures. And it's natural that it would have been kind of a propeller head dominated thing. I don't know, 50 years of a propeller head dominated thing, but oh well, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> um, but it's moving to a place where it'll be a lot more practical. So where is DI being used right now? to solve problems that people may know about? Or if we don't know about them, and there's been some success stories, could you tell some of those? Sure. Um, so there's a lot. I think my favorite, let me begin with the one I like the most, which is COVID safety. So COVID, it turns out, you know, my, my life just all kind of worked well this year. Mm -hmm. uh, not that it was nice having COVID back in March. That was, that was awful. But it, it gave me a chance to think really hard, and I realized that DI is a perfect fit for it. 
So what do we do if we're the head of a university and we have to decide, are we going to open the university up? What do we do if we're running a sports arena and we're trying to decide whether we're going to have a season or not, right? You know, there's really two things we have to decide. One is, are we going to do it at all? And that's based on, can we afford the safety mitigations that we would have to put in place to keep people, you know, let's just say we don't want them any more in any more danger as best we can calculate than they would have been driving to the sports arena in the first place. Because that's, you know, a risk level that we're willing to, to tolerate. We have been historically. So that's probably a pretty good. And they've got like a whole list of decisions, right? You know, am I going to insist people wear masks? Am I going to enforce mask wearing? Am I going to charge somebody a fine if they're not wearing, you know, am I going to put in HVAC if it's an indoor space that blows the air? I mean, there's like a hundred different decisions, some of which required by government guidelines, each one of which has this pattern where each of these decisions has like this chain of, you know, what it'll do. It'll, it'll cost me, you know, a thousand dollars for the HVAC and that's going to hit my budget. But for every, for every, you know, dollar of investment in, in the HVAC system, I'm going to reduce the number of particles that hits an average person by 3%. And for every 3% reduction in particles hitting you, the likelihood of somebody getting sick in a 100,000 person stadium is 2%. You know, so, and, and then, you know, so, so there's this chain of reasoning between all of these different things. And then if that's not complicated enough, the mitigations that you do interact with each other. So yes. the HVAC interacts with the masks, interacts with the hand washing, and then they combine with each other. And we're trying to do this in our heads. I mean, that's like trying to build that skyscraper without a freaking blueprint, right? Yes. <laughs> and so we need two things. We need the picture to get us all aligned, everybody who's a stakeholder, not just us decision makers, but the patrons and, and the audience members, the fans who are going to come, they need to see how we thought through the safety decisions that we're making. Yes. They deserve to see that. And we're not showing them that. We're just showing the result. Oh, you must do X and Y and Z. But we're keeping them completely blind from the results of that. And then the other thing we need, in, in addition to that transparency and alignment with the stakeholders, is we need to be able to use some data and the latest models to inject into that. So those mm. individual links, like that link between you know, HVAC and how many particles hit you. You know, we might have a really good scientific study that says, here's how HVAC impacts the number of aerosolized particles that hit you. Or how about toilets? You know, how about the thing about, you know, you go into the toilet, you flush it, right? So there's some good scientific research coming out as to how that stuff that comes out of the toilet infects you, right? And so that's going to change your policy about, you know, how many people get to go to the bathroom at any given right. time, right? So we've got, we've got these three parts. We've got the actions you have, the outcomes, which is you need to want to stay alive as a business, but you also want to keep people no more dangerous than in the car. Mm. And then you've got all this data and models and science and humans and experts yeah. and some machine learning that inform that whole picture. And look, I'm waving my hands and being invisible because we're, <laughs> <laughs> because we're here. <laughs> um, so um, I think COVID is a great example of that. I mean, this is an engaging process. It requires, pe the, the exciting thing about it is it requires people to work together to come up with these solutions. Yes. If you're going to do it well, to get it all out of your head and get it up on a wall somewhere. Exactly. Oh, and can I say this really cool thing? Yeah. Because yeah. this, this refers to something you said. You said earlier that it was hard. And it is hard to convince everybody's boss that he's going to sponsor this and that they're all going to go in a room and do this. That is hard because it's a new thing. But what's so cool and really exciting, I mean, imagine those guys building the building 
and then somebody walks in with a blueprint, they go, oh, I see what you're talking about. You can and show the, them. And the collaborative process, I mean, in this situation, we're actually building it together. So you get guys from all the silos, right? And you say, what are we trying to achieve? What do you know? What do you know? Et cetera. There is this moment where it's like, oh, there's this giant sigh of relief. Because until now, everybody was like pretending they could keep all these complex things in their head. And it was driving them crazy. You want a recipe for conflict and egos in the room? It's like they have like 2% of their brain to think, right? Because the rest of their brain is keeping the freaking, you know, uh, blueprint in their head of the actions and the outcomes. And I think this, and you listen to these people talk and they are, you can just listen. Next time you're in a decision-making meeting, listen. Oh, that was an action. Oh, that was a dependency. That was an outcome. That was a, a data. I mean, there's only six core parts to this blueprint. Yeah. You know, it's not like it's got a lot of pieces. And there's this moment where the people who never talked to each other before, let alone constructively, and when they did, they was like had like tiny bit of their brain to think because they were trying to keep it all in their head. It's not, they don't have that cognitive load anymore. It's on a map. And it's like, oh my gosh. Okay. What I said has been respected. It's been mapped. It's been heard. It's been seen. I see what you're saying. Yes. And, and you know the brain stuff better than I do. The visual motor cortex is so much smarter. I mean, what do they call the itty-bitty shitty committee, Wernickes and Brokas? <laughs> Have you heard this? <laughs> no. This, this is this tiny little piece of alpha software. Verbal reasoning really stinks, okay? Uh. I and mean, it's all broken. I mean, Kahneman and Tversky have studied how when we try to solve things with verbal reasoning, we make like systematic errors, all kinds of mistakes. When we shift that reasoning to visual and more importantly, motor, I mean, it's, I want to work with yes. you, Eric. I want to start moving in these decision models and using kind of this bilateral movement and having, you know, sports, sports things where we, we capture that motor thinking skill mm. because I think that's the next level. It's a little bit. There is an intelligence in the motor side that people yes. have yet to respect. We're not tapping into that. No. And there, there's yeah, athletes yeah. that I've worked with that whether it was because of their upbringing and they weren't, they didn't have the educational system around them to help them with their language. But when you have them take what's in their head and actually do it, there is an intelligence level that has there are some intelligence tests, like I think the MAB2 maps like visual processing. And so they're starting to map this um, yes. as an IQ, so to speak, Good. because there are a lot of fields. Like think about being a fighter pilot or think about somebody that's working. I mean, there's a lot of op jobs out there, but yeah, you're totally right. And if you could combine that decision-making component in your CD or causal decision diagram, the CDD, right. Right. You could see it in 3D space. Yeah. Holy cow. I yeah. remember the minority report when I, I was so inspired. Yeah. I want yeah. I wanted I, I used his picture for a while for my marketing where he's moving things around. Yes, yes. But, but let me make a key distinction. Minority report and a couple of the examples you're giving are decisions about things that happen in physical space. Okay. What we're talking is about hijacking that physical space intelligence and using it in conceptual space. Meaning um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be happier when I get on the phone with Eric because it's going to be fun. That's not something that I can touch out here in my room. That's a conceptual thing. Or I'm going to make more money, right? It's, it's sort of that one's also highly conceptual. Or my reputation or my brand will improve. So what we want to do is not just have things that are tangible on this map, 
but the intangible things as well. And to hijack, you know, that that motor visual thinking ability and use it for these conceptual things that are so difficult, like decisions I might make about climate. You know, maybe I'm going to buy an electric car and I'm imagining the supply chain and the cost of the environment. Those aren't things I can touch, but they are things I can draw pictures of on this map. I think the whole climate deal has been poorly explained to our country, to the world, really. Because it's all emotion-driven. And the arguments, like, like, well, the scientists say that, like, show me this, like, if I had a CDD Show me the why chain. Exactly. So I totally agree, Eric. Climate is one of those areas that people are not being explained things well to. And so I I think they're just throwing up their hands. You know, there's nothing I can do. There's no action I could take here. Where I can see if I take this action, it'll lead to this, it'll lead to this, it'll lead to this, it'll lead to this. So we, I built some climate dashboards. In fact, if you look at the C-SPAN show I was on, where there's an action you can take, then there's another thing. How many of your friends can you influence to do the same actions? And assuming that each of them can influence the same number of people, right? Uh-huh. You take this action and then you turn up this knob and that's a viral exponential effect. And so now you can see how an action you take actually can have a measurable, tangible impact by seeing it. So I think that sense of agency, that sense that I can make a difference is huge. And having that map of how your actions lead to outcomes is essential because it's way too complex. It's too long a chain of events for us to rock, for us to capture in our heads verbally what's going on. And so we, in my humble opinion, one of the main reasons that we fail on things that are like invisible, exponential, long chain of events is because we're trying to use you know, this itty bitty <laughs> you know, alpha verbal software. And it, that includes text, by the way. Yeah. And we're not, we're not showing that stuff visually and, and motor and all that. I love it. Okay, you brought up something earlier and you and I've had this conversation before about risk. In any decision that you make, there's a risk evaluation. And I've right. heard it said that risk is not only the probability of bad outcomes, but it's also the probability of good things that you've missed out on. And so you have to look at the range of possibilities. How do you think through risk? I visualize it. So again, go back to this action. So let's talk about me being on the podcast with you, (laughs) (laughs) right? There's a risk that I'm going to look like an idiot, (laughs) right? Small, small. Right, right, right. You never know, you never know. Maybe my hair is wrong, I don't know. And that risk, you know, as I think through that risk, that's not a definite outcome. That's a possible outcome. Okay. So as I draw those pictures, I can also draw pictures of the things that aren't certain, but that might play out. And by having those visually in front of me, that gives me a better opportunity to say, okay, I'm going to, so here's the thing that could play out. Okay. What's a new action I could take that'll hook into that chain of events that will make it less likely that I'm an idiot. Right. So like I decided to get a really good night's sleep last night. Right so that I would be looked less like an idiot. <laughs> right? Your brain so would be functioning in an optimal state. Yes, that's thank you. That's a much nicer yeah. way to put it. Yeah. So, so, so now I can think about, and you know, I do this all the time, even if I'm not drawing the pictures, I'm thinking more visually in my uh-huh. head because I've been doing this for so long. Okay, I'm going to sleep and that's going to sort of inject itself into that risk path that, that I will flub my words on this podcast, right? And so we both visualize what the downsides might be on the outcomes, draw a picture of that, however you like, right? And then also we can then now think about, okay, what are the new actions I can take that that will mitigate those risks? And drawing pictures of those is a really good idea. This is such good stuff. Let me take this to like my everyday life, okay? Yeah. 
how could I use a decision intelligence for me to evaluate actions that I need to take? Is it, would it just be like sitting down and pulling out an eight and a half by 11 and just start to just map this thing out? Right. Right. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of answers to that question. Mm -hmm. So let me give you three of them. Okay. And, and this is especially good if you're trying to work with a team on a complex decision. I mean, if you've got a pretty simple decision, you know, you don't need to draw a map of it, right? But if yeah. it's complicated and there's lots of people who have opinions and you want to somehow get all, you know, call a friend, get, get all of the expert advice you can possibly get, that's, that's when this really comes into its own. So rule number one, brainstorm through the actions that you could take. And the rule of that brainstorming, what we're trying to get is, is creative of you. We're trying to make sure we don't overlook and, you know, have blinders on that there's some action we could take we didn't think of, right? And the best way to get blinders on is to think of the implications of your actions at the same time you're trying to brainstorm through the actions. So it takes, you know, in my head, and I'm not a brain expert, but there's one part of my brain that's good at like, oh, you know, I can have a podcast with Eric. I could do another C-SPAN show. Boom, 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 boom. What are all the things that I could do, right? There's another part of your brain, which is, is that a good idea? That's kind of analytical thinking. If you try to do those at the same time, you'll be stupid mm. <laughs> because the blood has to like go back and forth between the brainstorming creative and the analytical, is that a good idea? So you set a rule with yourself or a rule with the team. I'm just going to write down. And if you write down some bad ideas at the same time, that's super good. And some funny ideas, that'll really, really kind of put those creative juices in. So the goal is you want to really want to mitigate the likelihood that you'll miss an action that you could take that would be a really good idea. And okay. anybody on the team or any critical voice in your head that says that's a bad idea, not allowed, which is why maybe it's good to start with a few stupid ideas, right? To really teach your brain. But that's not, that's not happening. We're not analyzing right now. <laughs> And then the next thing you do is you do the same thing with your outcomes. What are we trying to achieve? And this is probably, you know, one of the most important practices because a lot of people are very narrow-minded. They think, oh, we want customer delight. Well, you know, actually we don't want customer delight because we could get customer delight if we all gave them a Learjet. All of our customers right. would love to get a Learjet. <laughs> That's not what we want. We don't want customer delight. That's a means to an end. We want to be a successful company and we want to have a positive social impact. And so do the same thing, bang, 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 with all the outcomes. And then you can start drawing the diagrams between them. And the book sort of describes how to do that. But it's not rocket science. You don't really need the book. And you can look at my blog if you want. So I just shot myself in the foot. I just took an action that, that increased the risk of one of my outcomes. No, you no, must have you definitely, the book. You definitely need to read necessary. the book. <laughs> the, the book made... <laughs> you connected all the dots for me in the book, but that makes sense. How could I use this with my kids? Again, what I just said is good, but I, I think there's a third thing that's great with kids, which is what are we trying to raise with kids? We're trying to raise them to be good decision makers. Right. So if we not only tell them what their actions could be, but then we also tell them you must take this action. There's a really bright line between those two things. One of them is helpful parental advice the others taking over their lives and actually hijacking their ability to make a decision, make a mistake and learn from that. So to me, I think it's really important in parenting to draw a bright line. Now, sometimes we have to say, do this, right? Mm -hmm. but, but we need to limit that because what we're trying to teach them is to have their own agency and to be good at making decisions. And if they don't get to pull the levers, say, okay, I've heard your advice. I've heard all your ideas. Oh, and we can tell them, here's the implication. If you take this action, it's going to, you know, if you choose to, you know, get a car, 
and you're 15 and a half, you might hit a wall. I mean, that's fine <laughs> for us to say, if you do this, it will cause that. But that's very different than saying, you must then, because of that, make this decision. I right? can see that being really helpful of actually like sitting, like recently my son got $32. My parents sent all this change in the mail. <laughs> that's heavy fun. box of change. And uh, <laughs> evidently they've done it for the other grandkids. Fun. And so they counted all this money and they're all excited. And then he wanted to go get a superhero. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he spent some of the money on that. But he is a builder. He loves to build. I mean, tape, cardboard, like you name it, like springs. He will make stuff. And so like he bought this thing. We let, let him do it. And then later on, he was like, hey, I want to do this. This is like, well, shouldn't you have considered that when, you know, may, if, if these are things that you really, really love. And so right. I could actually see, seeing that been like a, a really good exercise to help him determine where to spend his money. Right. Would have been like, what is it that you really want and what could give you the most long-term satisfaction? Right. Yeah. This is really cool. But again, stop short as much as you can of telling him, okay, this is the action you should take. And this is really hard for people who think of themselves as experts, right? Because we want to say, because of all this, you should do X or Y or Z. Mm. And that's different than saying, if you do X, it will cause this and this and this and this. And just so you know, but it's your choice. It's your decision to, to decide ultimately what to do because you're the one who's, who's going to be, you know, happy or not. So therefore, if you've got, you know, there's this principle of alignment between information, responsibility and authority, right? He's the one who's going to be impacted by this. So to, to make him not insane, it would be nice if he also has the authority to make the decisions that might lead to this. So in this entire construct, you could make the map, the CDD, and then you could really start, ex- like if you were to execute these processes and then capture data on it, then you start modeling what's going on. And that is that where the machine learning comes into play to go, okay, now we're going to learn about these decisions and outcomes? Actually, yeah. Actually, machine learning usually works on just individual links. Okay. Right? So, I mean, we could, and we started to talk, but it's not very widespread, learn from the whole action to outcome thing and then using that to optimize the whole thing. But that's really new. There hasn't been a lot of thought about that. In fact, I'm in the middle of an NSF proposal to do that right now. That's pretty cutting edge. Where machine learning comes in is just the individual links, like kids who love building, who are a particular age, right? Who spend money on this thing, their you know average happiness is this. So maybe somebody's done a scientific study and mm-hmm. they've figured out and they have some data about kids and happiness from toys that they buy. That's where the machine learning or the results of a scientific study would come in. So it's just on those individual links as you go down the chain from the actions to outcomes, as okay. opposed to optimizing the whole thing which is pretty new. We could do that maybe, but it would be pretty cutting edge. Well, speaking of new, what do you see coming down the pipeline? Decision intelligence is the future of AI. Hmm. AI is, uh, there's probably a good metaphor you can make me think of. It's beating its head against a ceiling or, or knocking its head against a wall hmm. that it's not going to get widespread adoption until we loop it into how people naturally think through things. And people naturally think it's just how my dog operates and you and I operate in terms of actions flowing through to outcomes. That's how we we do that a thousand times a day, right? Mm-hmm. We have these mental models. And unless AI can fit into that 
thought process, it's going to be fundamentally limited. And it's going to be limited to the situations that are kind of these special cases where we have massive amounts of data and really simple decisions. So as soon as we start moving to like the bank I worked with that had a very complex business transformation decision that it had to, to make and another telecom company I worked with that had to decide on a new product. As soon as we have these more complex decisions that involve reputation and brand and decisions and money and all of that, AI can't do that alone. AI is good at thing labeling and predicting, period. Mm. All the other AI is still in research and hasn't made it out substantially on a widespread basis. AI is good at saying, oh, there's a picture of a man with a beard. Right. And AI is good at saying, you know, I predict this particular stock will, will go up by 30% next year. But that's different than mapping all the way from actions to outcomes. That's not the same. That's a piece of that. It's, it's an ingredient in the cake, but it's not the whole cake. Wow. So decision intelligence is really the AI of the 21st century. People are going to be listening to this podcast now. It's like back, <laughs> it's like back to the future. You know, you're going to be like 15 years down the line. This is going to yeah. be everywhere. I just see so many possibilities for how this could be used. And there's an early mover advantage, in my opinion. Yes. And, um, you know, I was thinking in my head while I'm listening is how do people, how do people find you typically? Like, I just like, I, I know how they can find you. They can Google your name. They can go to LinkedIn. But how do they, like, I found you in the public library. Yeah. How do people usually end up knocking at your door? Because you've worked with some big organizations. Is it that they're just like, we got this problem we can't solve? You know, what are the questions they're asking that lead them to you? Is it a colleague that's like, listen, this is out of my scope. You need to call Lorian. I think what they'll do is they'll Google decision making. They'll Google complexity seems to be a keyword that they use to get through to me. Mm. And yeah, it's word of mouth. I think that where I stand and the reason DI is not yet widely understood is that I haven't actually cracked that nut as well as I need to. So 10 years from now, you know, you'll be watching this. You go, oh yeah, she was on, you know, <laughs> Fox News and MSNBC and all of those. Why would she yeah. say it all of that? But right now, you know, I haven't actually cracked the nut of, you know, I've been kind of limping along in this, you know, getting this thing promoted and, it, and it's, you know, in terms of how they find me. I mean, right now, if you guys want to find me, linkthebook.com. Yes. And you should <laughs> buy it. You should, you should read it. it. And you should do as I did and have done. I have highlighted what I love about this book. And just for people listening, we had no conversations leading up to this about promoting this book. But I just have to say, one of the things I really enjoy, and I have the book right here, is how when you get to a key insight, it says key insight. <laughs> and it's like, there's some stuff that you have to read a couple times for somebody that's a novice like me. And then you tell a really good story. And then you're like, here's the insight. I'm like, oh, yes. And I'll highlight it. and I'll circle it. And I'll just sit there and think about what does this mean for me? And so it's a very well done book because I've, I've read some books in the past that were like, okay, I'm reading something that's a stretch for me. And it, it takes months and months to read it. And this was, you made this so digestible. I think it's going to end up being a textbook that universities use. And I think anybody that goes into computer science, this would be like one of their first reads their freshman year for sure. Yeah. So I think it should be. Thank you for saying that. I mean, it gives the context around everything that we're doing. I mean, if we're not supporting better decisions, then why are we here? Hello? Uh, I mean, and everybody's been, as you said at the start, siloed down into like, how does the microwave work? 
without really talking about, you know, what kind of food it's going to cook and what the restaurant will be like and stuff like that. So it gives you that context around if you're a data scientist or an AI person, why are you doing this? And it gives us a formal way of mapping from the, the brain that we're doing inside out to out to the larger application we might be building that solves some problem. Or so if you're the you. non-data scientist like me, yeah, yeah, and you want to understand how to use data science. That's right. I think this would be a really good bridge for people in like business schools, entrepreneurs. I think coaches that have that are at universities should be reading this book because they could start tapping into those people on campus like we've done where I'm at right now. But um, thanks. Yeah, this is so exciting. Thank you. Um, Thank you. What are you learning about? The last question I want to ask you is like, what are you learning about right now to, to push yourself? I think I'm learning how to get by on five hours of sleep. Oh, <laughs> I can help you with that. Well, fine. We can work on that one. Um, let's see. What am I learning lately? Right now, I'm coding because um, our company got really hit hard by COVID. We lost a lot of business. So mm. we lost some people. And, and so now, you know, here I'm an executive and I'm writing software. <laughs> so today, today, what's happening right now, I'm cleaning my bathroom bowl. I have a headless simulation of COVID running thousands and thousands of different scenarios for a, a conference center space with the COVID particles flying around and the people walking around. And that's running on a cloud somewhere in a cornfield in Kansas. Um, Holy cow. So I'm, I'm, I'm learning that technology and how to do that. I think the key thing that I want to learn is the question that you asked, how can I help people find this and how can I make this accessible? And it, you know, how do you go from something that you know is important that nobody's heard of? Nobody has a budget that says decision intelligence on it, right. right? How do you get those budgets so that people are spending money on this such that it starts to get widely used? And that's that's what I'm beating my head against is how to how to evangelize this thing. And I've been doing that for 10 years. Well, you, you have an evangelist right here. Oh, uh, well, thank you. It's yeah. great. Yeah. And, the, and I hope that the people that, that are listening to this go find her on LinkedIn, buy her book and her company, Quantilla, is solving these problems and they have the capability to solve some big ones. And if you just look at the organizations they've worked with, Department of Energy, DOD, you've done some amazing things. You've been very humble on this podcast. I think people are going to be really pleasantly surprised at what the capabilities are. Lauren, I just want to thank you for being on today. This was so much fun for me because yeah, I did. stalked yeah. you as soon as I got the book. I hunted you down on LinkedIn. And um I'm just, I'm really thankful that I've gotten to know you and that you came on today. And I hope our listeners, again, I've never plugged anything so hard by this book. It is worth your time. So thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Eric, very much. And thank you everyone for taking the time to listen. Very, very grateful for that. Thanks for joining me today for another episode of the Blueprint Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, would you please help us by providing a review simply by going to ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Again, that's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Also, if you want to stay current on everything high performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Corum, Twitter at Eric Corum, Facebook at Eric Corum, and LinkedIn at Eric Corum.